0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased today to be speaking with Dr. Matthew Ward about his fascinating, thought provoking book titled Making the Frontier Man Violence, White Manhood, and Authority in the Early Western Backcountry, published by the University of Pittsburgh Press in 2023 which investigates, I think, a really interesting time and place that in some ways we think we know really well. There's certainly some kind of key cultural um, legacies and uh, ways in which we think we remember this time and place. But actually, there's kind of a lot of assumptions built into those legacies and things we've been handed down. And this book does a really proper exploration of why this trans-Appalachian West, in the kind of time period, during, before, and after the American Revolution, was a place that had quite a lot of violence, and that thought about violence in very particular ways. So Matthew, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast to investigate this with us.
0: Thank thank you for having me, it's great to be here. Could you
1: start us off, please, by introducing yourself a little bit and explaining why you decided to write this book?
0: Yeah, um, I'm a senior lecturer at the University of Dundee in Scotland, we're just north of Edinburgh, Um, The book itself actually has quite a sort of convoluted, deep past When I wrote my first book a long time ago, uh, I was looking at um, the impact of the Seven Years War, French and Indian War, in Virginia and Pennsylvania, and one of the things I looked at was the unrest uh, in the backcountry that came out of the war. And one of the questions I was constantly getting asked is, well, how far is this the Scots-Irish? What's the role of the Scots-Irish here? And so I had thought for a le- for some time about the idea of doing a project looking at the role of sort of ethnicity and violence in the early West. And then in about, I think it was 2004, two scholars in Pennsylvania at Jack Marietta and G.S. Rowe came out with a book called The Troubled Experiment, looking at uh, court records in Pennsylvania and arguing that Pennsylvania had started off as a very peaceable community. But in the course of the 18th century, the colony had been overwhelmed by these waves of poverty stricken, poor immigrants, particularly the Scots-Irish, who completely transformed the colony and brought this sort of legacy of violence. So I came up with this bright idea to, to use court records, which I think are a, a, a fascinating and underused source uh, for early American history. They give you a really good window into what's going on in local communities. So, so I came up with this bright idea to do a big sort of comparative project, uh, looking at court records from across the early backcountry, starting off in sort the of 1730s and 1740s, in Virginia and Pennsylvania, and then steadily moving west as the sort of back moves west over time and ending up in Ohio and Kentucky. And we also looked a little bit at Canada as well. Um, and I managed to get a, a project grant to do this, and we put together these big databases that are we've now made available to the public, um, looking at these court records, looking for evidence. Um, that violence was at least partly connected with poverty and with ethnicity. So we put these records together and we cross-referenced the the, the court records with uh, tax records and we created a big database of surnames and sort of waited for the results and then when the results came out Uh, there really isn't very much correlation. Um, In the early West, you see some some sort of links. But what was interesting was sort of later on, the courts were actually prosecuting wealthier people and uh, certainly not the Scots-Irish. So a lot of these arguments that have been put forward, you didn't see any evidence for this actually in the court records. Now, if if I was a scientist and was saying, oh, the Higgs boson, it doesn't exist. Great. Um, But for someone in history you're sort of left with the the question well well so what what does this mean i could have written something perhaps saying um marietta and rose book is wrong or parts of the book are wrong but i i don't think that there's that many sort of real problems with it it's just the way you interpret the court records um one of the things they'd argued was that so many of the early the people being prosecuted in court don't appear on the tax lists that they, that that people being prosecuted must be poor. Um, but I compared that with uh, the records for jurors. And what we found was people on the juries had a similar social status as far as we could, a similar proportion were not appearing in the tax records as with people being accused of other, other crimes. So we were left sort of wondering well what's going on here one of the things with the with the court records of course in the 18th century is you don't have uh, a police force you don't have uh st- st- state prosecutors you're relying on people who are bringing cases to the county court and what we were particularly interested in were, were petty crimes so not things like murder um but sort of little brawls between people's disputes, um, evidence of sort of discontent in backcountry communities. Um, And so when I was trying to look through these records, the one thing that absolutely stands out Um, that I had not expected to see, that as far as I know, no one else has really looked at uh, and commented on, probably because no one else has tried to do such a big, broad project that's going to be so problematic, was the disappearance of women in the court record. So in the middle of the 18th century, women make up quite a large proportion of the people uh, appearing uh, before the court. Uh, So in places like Frederick County in Virginia, women are about 20% of those being prosecuted in courts. And there are about 15% of those people bringing cases into the court, Um, slightly fewer in Cumberland County in Pennsylvania, but there's still about 10% of those appearing before the court. When you go forward a little bit and you look at particularly at, at the Bluegrass region in Kentucky there are virtually no women at all appearing before the court. They've just vanished. Uh, and that's not because the Western population is overwhelmingly male. Um, these communities, by the time the courts are functioning, um, women are making up sort of 45% of the population. Um, it's not that the women are not there they're just not appearing in court. And so this led me down the line of thinking well, what roles is masculinity playing in, in violence? How are attitudes to masculinity changing, particularly in the West? Uh, and this was really then what launched me into the sort of the bulk of this project, sort of thinking about the, the correlation between what I call manhood and how Western men think about themselves and identify themselves and that connection. Uh, with with violence in the West, so it's sort of quite a convoluted and long task. I feel rather like the the people that I'm studying. That I started off with this sort of wide idea of how wonderful this was going to be, <laughs> doing things in doing this project, and then ended up sort of having to struggle for many years to get through it, which I think was the experience of most of the, the colonists and the men that I study uh, in in this book.
1: That's a fabulous backstory, to be honest, um, because it does set up so nicely kind of what the problem is that you're, uh, well, what the question is that you're asking and that you're then solving, both in terms of like historically what happened and why isn't it sort of what we think it is. But also I appreciated the insight into the methodological aspect as well, because that's so key to what we do as historians is which records say what and what can we understand from investigating them. So now that we have this idea of kind of all the pieces that illustrate this gap that we now want to fill and understand and, and solve, can you tell us about what you mean by the term 40 years war? Because this seems to be a pretty key part of your answer. And what perspectives you think this new idea opens up for understanding this gap?
0: One of the things that sort of most uh, in- annoys me in some ways thinking about Western history uh, or the history of the early West um, is attempts to apply sort of Eastern chronologies on the West. So in particular, I think you could start off just looking with the idea of the Revolutionary War in the West. It, it, It doesn't really... Explain what's happening uh, in the Ohio Valley, in the Great Lakes, any re- any really part of of the Appalachian Frontier from from New York down to down to South Carolina. Um, the war, the Revolution, doesn't make sense as uh, as an issue in the West. Um, it hides, using it as, as a, a sort of item of chronology hides a lot of other uh, issues. And I think this is this is sort of problematic. I'm just at the moment reading a really interesting book by A. Lynn Smith called Memory Wars. And she talks very much about the importance of what we call war. She's looking at Sullivan's campaign in New York and is arguing, you know, how we term and think about uh, events is fundamentally important. And I think using terms like the Revolutionary War um, creates a sort of false chronology of what's happening in the West. And I think you can see that clearly with things like uh, if we want to compare um, Dunmore's war, Dunmore's campaign in 1774, uh, Clark's Western campaign just four years later, um, if we use the chronology of Dunmore's war and the Revolutionary War, these are two completely separate events. We have a, a governor who is just a few months later forced to flee from Virginia, waging this campaign that doesn't really seem to make any sense in the broader chronology. And then we have George Rogers Clark, this big campaign to conquer the West for the United States, part of the Revolutionary War. But actually they're part of the same thing that's happening, this attempt by Virginia to claim the West. And for the people on the ground, uh, whether you're talking about Native Americans or a a white colonist who are moving into the region. This is one struggle that starts in the middle of the 1750s, and goes on until at least the middle of the 1790s. I'm, I'm not the first person to sort of argue this. Uh, David Curtis Skaggs, uh, many years ago, um, argued for a 60 years war for the Great Lakes, um, starting in, in the 1750s, going on to the War of 1812. Elizabeth Perkins has pointed out you know, that uh, this is a, a one continual struggle. But I think if we try to reconceptualize this struggle as one, Period, rather than breaking it up into into different pieces, it makes it much easier to see what impact this was have, having both on native people and, in particular, on the on the families of these white colonists who are moving into the west and. When you think of the Revolutionary War in the East, 1781, after the Battle of Yorktown, the war sort of winding down, everything's coming to an end. Uh, in the West, 1782 is the worst year of the war. It's, it's the bloodiest, most brutal year of the war. It starts off with the Nunhut Massacre, and then you... You have uh, the defeat, the defeat of the Kentucky militia at Blue Licks. You have uh, Crawford's expedition, which is captured. You have the destruction of Hannah's Town. It, it It's widespread violence, and the war doesn't really end with with the Treaty of Paris. It winds down because the British stop supplying uh, their Native allies with guns and ammunition for a while. But you have this this struggle carries on. And you end up with these, these sort of battles and struggles in the late 1780s and into the 1790s that don't even really have a proper name. Um, and you end up with Harmer's uh, campaign, uh, St. Clair's defeat, uh, that uh, Colin Calloway's called quite rightly the victory with no name. Why doesn't ha- why is it St. Clair's defeat? Why doesn't it have a battle? And then uh, the Battle of Fallen Timbers, which is actually the, in some ways the least important of these. It has the least impact on uh, in terms of casualties on both sides um and then the war sort of finally peters out um for various reasons, but if you try and interpret this as one period of warfare, it's the same people, the same—they're fighting for the same reasons. It's being impacted by what's going on outside, so the, you can't say the revolution is not has no impact on what's happening in the West. You have these early settlers in Kentucky; they call one of their first uh, main settlements Lexington, and that's reflecting on the fact that they know what's going on in the East. But the issues that are being um, campaigned about in the in the, the political issues. They're not so pressing in the West. What Westerners are concerned about is security, and their relationship with the government, with the with the with the state governments, with the new United States government, with the British, is largely dependent on other things. So it's a very different pattern. And if you try and impose Eastern chronologies on what's happening in the West, it doesn't really make sense of of the Western struggle. It, it's one really intense struggle. And I think I'm a little hesitant in some ways to argue this. Uh, People might be able to contradict me with other specific examples. But the war in the West, what we see, particularly in places like Kentucky, Western Pennsylvania, I think this is probably the longest, most intense um, period of conflict uh, anywhere uh, in uh, uh, in the American West, possibly sort of 17th century New England, you might argue. But you have different periods of wars. But I don't think there's anywhere else where you see such an intense um, struggle for so long in the same region involving so many different people. And I think if you just start using chronologies like the American Revolution, the Revolutionary War, and you see things like Clark's campaign as being part of an Eastern issue, it doesn't make full sense of what's happening in the West. And you can't explain the responses, both of Native people and more in, in terms of my work, uh, of white families. Uh, To what's happening if you think about these Eastern issues. So I think that the idea of of the 40 years war is really important to sort of stress, here is one big struggle that is located in this region. It's a regional struggle. It's not part of a global conflict. And that's also why I, I sort of made the decision to use the term French and Indian war, which was something that I'd Moved against in my first book, I was very specifically wrote about the Seven Years' War there, um, because the Seven Years' War is a global war. It, it's it's war that's partly fought in Europe. We we don't like the term French and Indian War, because it's a sort of Parkman-esque vision that the war's caused by the the evil French and the and the nasty Indians, and it's all there for... But it it does stress that this is a war that's about the West. It's not a war that's about the war starts in the West. It starts with a Native headman Tanagrisson, and you know, killing the French envoy Jumonville, uh, telling him you you are not yet dead, my father. Trying to kill the French ally. It starts very specifically in issues in the West. It's not it's not part of a, a global conflict. It's a separate conflict, and I think that's really what I try to emphasize with the whole concept of the Forty Years' War. This is one struggle with periods of peace in between, like like the Hundred Years' War in in Europe much earlier but it's one continued struggle, the control of the Western territory. And you need to think about it in that way.
1: So I think that that obviously raises a number of very important points and not least of them is that idea of kind of taking, con- taking ideas or assumptions that do apply in the East and kind of assuming that they work the same way in the West. And I don't think that's just for chronology that's for other aspects of your argument as well for example definitions of masculinity both in terms of what we're doing as historians and seeing kind of what applies where but also from your book very much kind of how people at the time men in the west were thinking of what it means to be a man and kind of going well hang on our situation here the issues that we're fighting about the experience we're having is quite different from what's happening over there and that might mean that some things need to change so can you walk us through kind of what were the traditional maybe eastern definitions of masculinity and then what were the new ones being experimented with in this context of 40 years war you've just explained um and and kind of why there was this disconnect in this change
0: i think uh, one of the things to really think about is the the way in which um constructions of masculinity ideas of masculinity change uh, over time and how there can be sort of multiple constructions all going on at the same time. So there's not necessarily one idea of what it means to be a man. Um, But in the earlier 18th century, um, certainly the predominant, the most important sort of conception of what a man was, was rooted in the idea of what we might call patriarchy, uh, particularly uh, Filmer's idea of, of the patriarcha, and this is rooted more deeply in in sort of in, in biblical injunctions. Uh, for instance, in, in Ephesians, it tells, says, "We wives be subject to your husbands, for the husband is the head of the wife." Children obey your parents in the Lord. So there's, there's this broad idea that there's this sort of almost divinely ordained structure to society, and it's not just about gender it's also about people's uh, sort of social roles and social interrelationships that are all um, sort of defined by God with the king at the top and I think this is quite you know the, the idea that the family is a sort of little commonwealth that it models um, the, the, the role of society the, the, the husband the man is the king within his household well of course the revolution Challenges a lot of these ideas. You, the man must rule his family, but if the king doesn't have a right uh, to rule uh, his people, what natural right does a a man have to rule his family? And Thomas Paine, for instance, wrote wrote a a bitter attack on patriarchy, um, claiming that you know a patriarch is only an oppressor of his family. Uh, And so there are these these questions about patriarchy and the role that that men are supposed to have controlling and dominating their family. They're already coming in before the American Revolution. But I think the challenge to the crown and the the complete breakdown of this idea about how you structure society causes this whole idea of of patriarchy to sort of collapse and, and be reformed. And what really comes out, I think, particularly strongly in the, in the West, is the idea that a man uh, is independent. Um, the, the core basis of, of manhood isn't about controlling your family. It's not about uh, it's it's not about dominance. It's about independence, and of course, this ties in very directly to where do you get that independence? And it, it ties into sort of classical Republican ideas about the importance of the yeoman farmer. That you, some of the things that Jefferson was talking about, that that you you want a sort of rural population where everybody owns their own land and where people aren't reliant on other people. But it goes much further than that into the very sort of central idea that a man is an in, is independent from other people. He controls his own affairs. To be a real man, you have control over your life. And where do you get that that control? It's from owning land. Where do you get that land, particularly in the years immediately before and after the revolution? Where where is the land? If you're a landless man, where might you hope to get land? And of course, one of the places for that is is the West. And in the in the years immediately following the revolution, you have this huge sort of interest in the West. What what? Contemporaries called the buzzle about Kentuck, and there's this massive migration of people um, to the west in search of independence. And I, I think one of the things that I think is quite important is we need to remember how vast this migration was and how sudden. You know, in the in the, uh, after the end of the Revolutionary War, after about sort of 1780, you get this rush of um, I think it's about 200,000 people over the course of, of sort of 15 years who cross the Appalachian Mountains into the west and it just grows and grows and grows and there's been there's no comparable earlier sort of wave uh, of migration and it continues it doesn't stop it continues right through uh, arguably until until late in the 20th century of, of people moving west they're moving west this is men generally taking along their families. You, if you want to be a farmer in the West, you you can't you can't really run a farm without without a wife. It's people also looking for land that will provide an inheritance for their children. So it, it's broader ideas of independence. It becomes central to identifying what a man is. But the reality is, when you get to the West, most men struggle to get land. Um, Obviously, there's a sort of image that the West has all of this land that's just there for the taking. You can just sort of find a piece of land. You can mark a tree, a tomahawk claim to the land, and it's yours. That's not not what the reality is like. In reality, the land is owned by other people. People think they've taken land, but then they lose it. And so the men who go out expecting to be able to get land and claim independence often end up being forced to become tenants of other people. They're forced to become day laborers. They're forced into the very definition of not being independent. And at the same time that you have all of this, you also have, you know, the 40 years war going on. So you have these, you've taken your family out West and you can't even protect them. And of course protecting you, if independence is one definition of manhood protecting your family uh from harm is another very basic definition of what what it means to be a man and so you've taken your family out west in most cases we know women did not want to Go west. I mean, for for women, western migration must have been shattering. Um, you know that you lose your family ties, you lose your neighbourhood ties when you're out in the west. The lower population densities mean you have comparatively little uh, communication with other people. Certainly earlier on, uh, a lot of people talk about how isolated the women in the west were. It's a common theme uh, through these uh, through all the sort of contemporary accounts of the west. The isolation of women, the hard work that they have to do. You know, you've no longer got a store where you can get even things like cheese and cloth. You're having to make everything yourself. So you've exposed your, your family to these hardships. And at the same time, you're facing the, the absolute horrors of, of warfare, um, the fears of warfare, the fears what are going to happen uh, to your family. And for a lot of men, I think that sort of signifies sort of failure. They've gone West hoping to get their manhood, to get their independence, and prove that they are men and actually what happens when they go west is that they don't get land they lose their independence they threaten their families their their wives are much more important all the things that were not supposed to happen to them start to question their own constructions of what it means to be a man and i think this construction of uh of manhood around independence i think it's it's, it's a peculiar i don't it's not necessarily totally peculiarly american but i think it, it is an american a largely american construct um you see it in things like benjamin franklin's autobiography um the the importance of being able to make your own way improve yourself if you fail it's because you're lazy it's because you have some uh, character flaw so these men who don't get land whose families are suffering who who's who who are afraid of whether their women and children are going to be captured in in a, a native raid for them they've failed to prove themselves as men so i think this shift from patriarchy to independence emphasizes the importance of land it fuels this migration and then what happens in the west is it sort of seems to underscore the fact that these men have failed to become men that you Mm. there's something wrong with you um you're and you need another way of proving that you really are a man
1: Mm. all right so let's add on to that then or bring into that conversation um how much was racism against Native Americans part of this new kind of search for what it means to be a man? And where does violence come into this?
0: I think, in some ways, the, the racism against Native Americans is is not necessarily a cause of, of these new constructions of masculinity. It's more a result of the constructions of masculinity. Um, it's really interesting if you, one of the one of the sort of collections of sources that I used um, after I'd looked at the court records were these collections of interviews by a man called John Dabney Shane, uh, who was a a Presbyterian minister who travelled around the Ohio Valley in the late 1730s, 17, it's in the 1830s, 40s, uh, interviewing um, frontier settlers who'd survived and basically taking down their accounts, more or less verbatim. I mean, this is almost oral history. Um, there are some problems with it in that you know, the, the people he's interviewing are overwhelmingly male. There, there are a few women, but they're largely men. Uh, there's no Native Americans. There's no African Americans. But they're largely poorer, ordinary people who'd moved out to the West when they were young, so that they're remembering back to their childhood. And what you, what, what really struck me looking at, at these accounts is just the extent of violence violence is is just it's it's everywhere in these accounts what you would then expect is that you'd see throughout the accounts a sort of hatred of native people um but actually it's much more nuanced um i looked at the use of the term sort of savage in these accounts and sometimes these people are referring to native people as savages but when they use the term savage it's as often applied uh, to to white men in particular who are behaving in a particularly brutal fashion, and you certainly don't get the perception coming from these accounts that these groups of people uh, are particularly um, racist to, to Native Americans. It, it's quite it's quite strange in some ways, and I think you see this. Uh, Even more clearly, when you look at an individual, uh, perhaps like uh, Daniel Boone, um, Boone had every reason um, to hate native people. His son, James, had been captured. He was in in 1773. He was only 16. Um, Someone witnessed his capture. He was tortured and killed. Boone himself was then captured by um, a native, uh, native party in February 1778. Uh, he was held um, captive for about f- uh, four or five months. He eventually escaped. He was then court-martialed. Um, he was always sort of viewed very suspiciously by a lot of people. Then 1782, the Battle of Blue Licks. his younger, another one of his sons, uh, Israel, was killed at the Battle of Blue Licks. Boone had every reason to hate native people, but at the end of his life, you know, he moves to Missouri. He's actually, he's out hunting. He's the very people who had captured him in, in the family he had been with in, in, in the 1770s are the people that he's spending a lot of his life with at the end of his life. And I think this, this sort of complex relationship where violence is commonplace, but the, the hatred to native people is not always there. is quite important, and it's I've, it was one of the things that I found quite striking. But what you do see is is violence emerging and and sort of racism emerging as. Uh, as a way of proving manhood and i think you see this with something like the narden hutton massacre uh, so the Nardenhutton massacre takes place in, in the spring of 1782 um, the militia from western pennsylvania set out uh, into the ohio country and they come to the 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 Delaware village of Nardin-Hutton, uh, which is the Delaware, they're, they're Christian converts, they're pacifists, they've actually been supplying intelligence to the United States for much of the revolutionary war. Um, they're there for a few days and gradually the the, the militia gets more and more jumpy and then uh, they massacre the entire population. A hundred men, women and children are, are killed by hammering them to they use mallets to kill them in the, uh, in the, uh, in the rooms of the settlement, um, the slaughterhouses. A uh, hundred of them are killed. Um, I think the issue with this is why Rob Harper's raised this in his discussion with Dad Hutton. Why were people afraid to stop it? Why would no one stand up and say, this is bad? You can't do this. We don't want this. Men are using... Displays of violence as a way of proving the fact that they really are men. We're not afraid, um, but no one is standing up to stop this. And with Nantucket, I think you see it. William Irving, the the commander of the Continental forces at Fort Pitt, he, he's you know a, a Continental officer. He writes to his wife begging her not to criticise the Hut massacre, not to let anybody know what's going on. If the commander at Fort Pitt, who could have brought the per- perpetrators of, of this massacre um, to terms, is afraid that people might think he doesn't support the massacre. I think that that says quite a, a lot about the the dr- some of the driving forces that are creating this violence. And where, I, in my book, one of the things I, I look at is a, a sort of famous um, episode in 1786, um, when an uh, expedition of the Kentucky militia uh, arrives in the Ohio Valley and they they, they kill um, a native headman called Meluntha, who is uh, an American ally. Um, he's an old man. And historians typically have described this as a, a clear example of sort of uh, of hostility towards Native Americans. It, it, it's 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 an outburst of Native hostility. It, it's an example of this sort of in depth of, of racism that exists. But when I looked more closely at this expedition, what you started to see was all sorts of different things going on. Um, There were huge disputes within the expedition about who should lead it, about how it was to be conducted. Then when they got to the village, the the American colours are flying. Meluntha comes out to talk to them. And the man who steps forward, it's not the militia commander, uh, it's a man who has quite a history, a man called Hugh McGarry. uh, And he'd been... um, in the Kentucky militia for many years, he was famous or infamous in Kentucky for being the person who, at the Battle of Blue Licks, uh, had argued that the the Kentucky militia should advance forward. Um, The other two commanders, um, Boone and and Logan, uh, had warned the Kentucky militia that this was probably a trap. McGarry sort of famously said, you know, he who is out without fear, follow me. And they all charge forward into a trap and the Kentucky militia get massacred. And there's sort of a a sense that he's trying to recover his reputation from this uh, This. Uh, terrible sort of view that people have of him coming out of Blue Licks. But it goes even much further than that. Um, McGarry's stepson had been killed by a Native American. Uh, After that, he seems to have become a bit deranged. Uh, If you look at the Shane interviews... nearly everyone who talks about him talks about him in very, very negative terms. Uh, There was one episode where he captured a native man, tortured him and then fed him to his dogs. He's described as savage. What one person described him as a a creature without consideration was by nature, a savage. He became, I think, we can't do psycho history. uh, But I think if you were looking at him, if a psychologist was to look at him today, I think he became almost paranoid. He saw Indians hiding everywhere. Um, he had family issues. You know, his first wife died. He remarried. His children weren't happy with the remarriage. His new wife already had children. It was rumored in the community that he was a cook old, that his wife dominated him. And when the Kentucky militia gets to um, gets into the Ohio Valley and Maluntha steps forward, it's McGarry who comes forward and says, you know, were you at Blue Licks? And Maluntha doesn't understand this. I mean, he doesn't speak English. And McGarry thinks he was, and he just kills him. And historians have argued this is a spontaneous, an act of spontaneous fury. It's an example of this racial hatred but i think it shows how much more complex all of this is so racism i think becomes a, another way uh, of fueling violence of proving that you're a ma- by being violent towards native people you can prove that you're a man and that by things like the mutilation of bodies we we see this extensively the way that that spies, right through into the 19th century um we see it in, in the war of 1812 um uh, White men are cutting off native body parts. They're displaying them publicly. Malantha's head, if I remember rightly, was taken back to Fayette County, where it was displayed on a pike outside the courthouse. This sort of behavior. Um, Henry Clay um, reportedly uh, had uh, had a, had a, um, Ten squadaway scalp that he would display um, on on a, 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 a in the Senate. Um, you know, they, they sort of use this display of body parts this this um, these ways of proving your manhood um are a response to the threats to masculinity this violence that you can easily do against native people uh, it, it just breaks out and what's interesting is why people don't more people don't try to stop it and I think it's the what I talk about is the the weakness of authority the weakness of leadership I think is also very significant here and I think that episode with the murder of Maluntha shows that it's not just hatred there's all these other little things these niggling things that are causing problems that are prompting people um, to speak out to act against native people we see quite a lot of examples of, of of things like the torture of of native people who are captured fed to the dogs they're they're flayed i mean this this absolute these descriptions of absolute horror in the west but actually most of the shane accounts you don't have it's there's not this very strong hatred towards Native people. And I think that's one of the things that really struck me. And I th- you see it so clearly with Boone. It should be there, but it's not. It, it, it's a much um, a much more nuanced approach. It's some men, <clears throat> particularly men in the militia, who see this racism, this, this violence, as a way of proving, and it's another way that they can prove that they really are men. We can attack uh, these Native people, and it's a way that we can prove that we're men. So it's mm-hmm. the It's the masculinity that's driving the violence rather and the racism, rather than the racism that's driving the masculinity.
1: Mm. Yeah, no, that that makes sense and is important to um, untangle, kind of given how these things are often conflated. I want to ask you about something else that I think might fall into this category of kind of an expression of this masculinity or uh, related to it in that sense. And I promise listeners, I know this will sound like a tangent, but... I promise that it is actually in the book and is not it is very relevant and I'm Matthew I'm sure you're going to be able to explain it properly to listeners. What I'd like to ask you to kind of discuss given what you've told us so far the rise of horse racing especially in Kentucky how does that relate to what you've been telling us?
0: I think I, I, it's interesting that you say I have to de- explain why this is a tangent. I think this is absolutely central. I mean, it's it's part of the big story that's going on. What we've been I've been talking about most of the time so far is the sort of constructions of manhood, and uh, that ordinary men come up with uh, as a response to their failure in the West. Alongside this, you you have different constructions of manhood going on at the same time and while poor men might be using violence they might be using racism they might be using these as a a way of expressing uh, that their frustration that their manhood elite men wealthy men are developing rather different constructions of masculinity and horse racing taps right into a whole range of these different things um The type of horse racing that develops in Kentucky um, is rather different from what had been used in Virginia particularly before the 1750s which would be uh, early horse races were just very short sort of quarter mile races where anybody could participate and it, they were sort of community events what develops in Kentucky in the particularly in the 1790s is what's called distance racing uh, where you're racing stud horses so you you have a you have a, you know the the breeding of your horse they're often uh, have they tend to have sort of ties back to Arabian horses, to British horses. Um, they're very expensive. It's not just some nag that you've got out that you're racing around the race course. This is where elite men can display their wealth. Many of the jockeys are African-American. They're wearing bright clothing. Uh, you're gambling freely. You're displaying the fact that you have so much money. Um, you get the development of jockey clubs, which are places where the elite can can, can um can, can socialise together. And if you think of a horse race, um, it is you know, taking place in front of a large part of the community, but only certain people can participate. Only certain people can participate in that race. Uh, only wealthy men can participate. and They're at the centre of the stage, and everybody else is, is watching them. And this is you know, really important for elite men as a way that they can say, you know, this is... This, this is proving that I have been successful, that I am a man. Um, violence is also about display. If you, A lot of the violence is very public. Even the violence against native people, a lot of it is very public. It's taking place in public locations. Uh, one of the things that's interesting is the way that I think violence moved from taking place within private spaces like homes to public venues like taverns and courts. But horse racing in that sense is a, is a public display of masculinity, but it's also part of the development of of a sort of alternative construction. It's part of elite men in the West um, showing that they had made it, that they had been successful, and almost rubbing the noses of poorer men in the fact that they had failed. And I think that's quite significant.
1: It's very significant. Um, And I think the kind of move from the private to the public is a key part of this. And also, I think it's worth making explicit and asking you to talk a bit about kind of the assumption in the examples you've given us so far is not just that this is public, but also it's communal or it's a group. It's not one man off doing this by himself or against one other man. We we are talking in the examples you've told us about groups here. So can you tell us a bit about kind of this group aspect and to what extent and in what ways we see also some class differences coming into this violence
0: I think particularly by the middle of the 1790s um, sort of poorer men generally had become quite alienated from the ways in which they they felt that wealthy men um, were dominating um, West the Western society they were dominating the courts they were dominating the economy they were dominating politics uh, probably the clearest place that you see this of course is is what becomes known as the Whiskey Rebellion, uh, which in theory is is Western Pennsylvania in 1794. In practice, um, it's across the West. I mean, the Whiskey Rebellion, uh, I think, is a a bit of a misnomer in some ways. It's um, the term that Hamilton largely coined for it uh, as a way of sort of dismissing it as about just about the excise tax. It's not about it's not just about the excise tax. Um, it's about uh, the power of, of the elites, particularly a lot of it focuses on land and um... People were felt alienated from the elites um, because elite men had had appropriated uh, so much of the land. So you have people like Robert Morris in Western Pennsylvania, who 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 has speculated in land, buying up vast amounts of land. In Kentucky, you have issues with uh, disputes over land and the ways that elite men are able to to use the courts to 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 take over poor men's land. I mean, we have, we have examples like a uh, poor man, Daniel Florey uh, in Kentucky, 1802 wrote to a former governor who just essentially kicked him off his land, sort of saying, you know, I could not believe that any man would deceive another in such a weighty ma- matter until you came and told me the land was yours. So what we see happening really in the 1790s is, is groups of men across the West sort of cooperating together and, um, To try and sort of turn back um, this this growing sort of elite dominance of society, and almost this this elite dominance of what it means to be a man of masculinity, and that that's where horse racing and things fits in, and uh, a lot of this is about wealthy men rubbing poorer men's noses in the fact that they failed, and and it. Across the West, at this period, you get the construction of sort of big country houses. You have things like Levi Todd's home in Ellerslie, Henry Clay's Ashland. Um, these are all big constructions, very, very different from the poorer homes of white men. They have big gardens. They're filled with fine furniture. Uh, it's, it's a way of emphasising... Um, that that we have succeeded, and a lot of a lot of the responses to th- this come through communal groups, particularly things like the militia. The militia becomes very important here, uh, and also through um, sort of democratic societies. These things that have have. have seen as originating in in, in the French Revolution. But there's a lot of groups like the in Kentucky, you have the Bourbon County um, Democratic Society that start agitating against this sort of elite dominance, this elite control of society. And one of the focuses of this becomes the whiskey excise, uh, because the production of whiskey is so important to a lot of poorer men. It's not just about it's not just about drinking a lot of whiskey. It's the fact that this is an important part of the economy. If you have a crop of corn, there are limited things that you can do with that. And one of the things you can do is to distill it into whiskey, which is easily transportable. And whiskey becomes um, whiskey becomes a, a commodity in the West. It becomes a currency. Um, you can conduct business in sort of barrels of whiskey, uh, in gallons of whiskey. Um, and so the the whiskey tax is one of the things that sort of sparks off. Uh, this communal violence and the whiskey rebellion is, is probably the clearest example we have of communal violence uh, mobs attacking the homes uh, of wealthy elite men uh, particularly a uh, bower Hill uh, outside um, Pittsburgh mobs preparing to march on Pittsburgh uh, but the whiskey rebellion this opposition it's not just in western Pennsylvania we think of it as being in western Pennsylvania because that's where the the government decided to to exercise its power the youth government is is in Philadelphia at this time that the United States government is in Philadelphia. Western Pennsylvania is relatively easy to get to. Kentucky, Western North Carolina, uh, it's too far away. So if you want to show, display your force, you do that in Western Pennsylvania. But in Kentucky, there's no collection of the whiskey excise. There are democratic organizations getting together to protest this. Um, There's there's protests against the power uh, of the uh, of the elite. And I think it reaches its peak in the, sev- the middle of the 1790s. The Whiskey Rebellion, in a sense, is is this obvious expression of it because the government tries to stamp this down. But you see these sort of protests in Kentucky as well. And you see it in things like like almost just riots at court days. Um, Western courts become almost places uh, uh, of derision. and uh, And court days often become... A, 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 an opportunity for groups like the militia to sort of raise protests. And I think this is quite significant. So it's 17 middle of the 1790s and it's a, it's a protest against this elite demonstration of um, how they've succeeded while poorer men have not. And mm. it, it generates this widespread violence.
1: And can we talk a little bit more about the courts in all of this? Um, you mentioned them just now as being sort of sites of protest. Um, And obviously, at the beginning, the role of court records is key to this whole investigation. So can you tell us a bit more about the authority of the courts in this especially sort of 1790s context?
0: I think one of the things I, 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 that I found as really important in, in looking at Western communities was the, the role that courts played generally. I mean, we, we think of the role of the county court today as being sort of relatively superficial, as not involving a, a sort of lot of people. But I look one of the things you see is that court days are these big sort of social communal days. Um, In Frederick County, when I looked at that, in in one court session, a quarter of the population are appearing, a quarter of the male population are appearing before the court in some function, in just three months, in some form. You see the same in Kentucky in in the uh, early 19th century. Court days become days when everybody gets together. If you're not appearing in court, you go along to see what's happening. But the role of the courts shifts and I think this is this is really important because in the 1750s i feel the courts were representative of their communities in various different ways they were where the community got together to resolve disputes and resolve issues. So Laura Edwards has talked about the people and their peace. Um, you know, the justices are really significant. They can step in and resolve disputes between people. A lot of these court cases are resolved by equity rather than the rule of the law. You know, what's really fair? What is what is what does what does an individual really, what is he owed? Not by law, but by fairness. And in a commercial society, uh as as society becomes more uh, as the economy develops as people are moving around more law has to be Prescriptive. It can't be um, based on equity. You know, a merchant needs to know that they can collect a debt. They need to know what will happen if they if some if some if someone um, defrauds them or if somebody um, if you if you want to build a, a dam on a river, you need to know what the potential implications of that will be, who you need to, what rights you need to purchase. You can't rely on a court just deciding what is fair or what is not and what happens i think from the from the 1770s onwards is that the the law becomes more and more prescriptive it doesn't be, the courts cease to become a location where communities can get together and resolve their disputes it becomes a place in which a, a, a dogma, a, a specific set of rules, is applied uh, to what's going on, and we see that Ohio, for instance, decides to completely abolish common law. Common law continues after the revolution in m- most of the uh, in most of the um, American states, but Ohio decides that you know in, in a democratic society, in a republican society, this sort of law based on tradition, based on what has been done before, based on previous decisions, shouldn't happen. We should just rely on what's in the statutes. And what comes out of that is it removes the ability from communities... Um, To resolve disputes, so before the 1770s, 1780s, local communities could get together and and resolve a case based on not necessarily the letter of the law, but on what they felt was fair. Uh, This becomes impossible by the by the 1780s and 1790s, and there's a a really good example of this uh, in in uh, Washington County in Pennsylvania in. in place miller's run um, a whole load of, of families had settled on this land in miller's run uh, they thought they had purchased uh, the land for, from from quite legally from the owner uh, but in fact there were problems uh, with their with their purchase uh, a wealthy uh, nabob comes along uh, and tells them, actually, I've, I've got the land, it's mine. He offers them some long-term leases, uh, but they're too expensive. They can't afford them. Uh, they believe that they have rights in law, but the the, the landowner takes them the case to law, and th- there's a, a sort of story in the local community that he came before, the men just before the case, and said, holding up a red handkerchief, he said, gentlemen, I will have this land just as surely as I now have this handkerchief. And the case goes to court. Um, The man's agent reported to him uh, that the jury had wanted to give verdicts for the defendants to let the men stay on their land. But the letter of the law was that the land was his. So his agent sort of suggested to him, I suggest you let these people harvest their crops. Perhaps you might want to give them a little bit of compensation. Uh, You don't want too much hostility in the community uh, after all of this. So th- this is a clear case, I think, where the courts wanted to rule in favour of the people who were on the land, who had thought they'd purchased the land, but they have to rule instead because of the letter of the law in the favour of, of this wealthy land speculator, that wealthy land speculator is, is a man called George Washington, uh, which is why we so know so much about the case. Uh, and Washington, of course, makes a lot of his money um, through land speculation, as do a lot of leading Americans in this time. So it, it part of it is the impact of commercialization, the need for courts to become and the law to become prescriptive and for people to be able to predict exactly what's going to be able to happen. And this removes the ability of the courts to be able to resolve disputes. And this then means that you need to find other ways of resolving your disputes. You can no longer take a dispute to court. And I think that's why, if you look at the courts in Kentucky, they become more and more preserves of the elite. Ordinary people are not appearing in court because they just don't believe that they can resolve their disputes there. So they have to find some other way to do this. And and violence and fights and struggles for ordinary poor men are one way that you can can prove yourself. In the same way that elite men like Alexander Hamilton are dueling for poor men a a fight, a rough and tumble fight is one way that you can prove your masculinity. But the decline of the courts, I think, in that way is actually really significant because it gets rid of this community way of resolving disputes.
1: No, it really does, Um, which has quite a lot of impact, both immediately um, and longer term. So thank you for explaining how all those pieces come together. I want to ask you to tell us a little bit about kind of the how this is remembered and what are some of the kind of continued legacies that we see or saw from this period sort of going forward? Because as you've demonstrated to us, there's a lot of factors that create this new masculinity and the ways that it's expressed. Um, And those impacts don't kind of just form one generation and then go away, right? They they have quite an impact. So can you speak to one piece of this sort of legacy Um, militias and gun culture?
0: Yeah, I, I think um, the, the roles of the militias are, are, are very significant uh, and the ways that the militia sort of starts to become so significant in the West. Um, if you actually look at what went on directly in the Western campaigns right from the 1750s through to the War, the war of 1812, the militia is is not uh, a great military uh, success. Um, all the military commanders complain about the militia, uh, but it becomes this great sort of symbol of uh, of independence. The militia is really a key um, component of of the idea of independence. Local communities can defend themselves. Uh, in reality, they they really can't. Um, but the militia man, uh, particularly uh, men armed with rifles. Um, defending their communities against incomers, particularly Native American tax. This becomes very symbolic of. Uh, western independence and in some ways almost the the icon of the westerner is the militiaman armed with his rifle and it ties into things like um the importance of, of guns one of the things i thought about i looked at here was, was sort of the development of for once of a better term a gun culture um i think it's it, if you look at the west Um, before the 1750s it's very difficult to see that guns had a particular role within society there were quite a lot of guns about Um, I looked I used some of the work of Carol Seamus who developed some um, uh, databases based on uh, uh, on probate records and I just looked quite quickly at what she'd done there and you know I, I probably about half of of Probate records contain guns, which suggests that there's a relatively widespread ownership of guns. They're not ubiquitous, um, but they're quite widespread. Um, But what seems to happen in this period is that the image of a man armed with a gun becomes much more important and guns start to become very symbolic. Um, It's not just the gun. The gun becomes a symbol of freedom and independence. And the militia is one of the places that you can... uh, can, um, develop this so you get this so the militia becomes a very important community organization and it's a community organization largely of poorer men and i think that's what's what's significant it displays in front of the community rather like horse racing but the militia is, is ordinary white men they organise events like 4th of July parades, they display they have shooting competitions where you can display um, your your prowess at shooting and it's interesting, there's one or two where women participate and there, I think there's a woman, I think it's Esther Whitney uh, in, in, in Kentucky who wins one of these competitions but they have to sort of hush it up so she's given a prize but she's not officially the winner because a woman can't possibly win a shooting competition. This is a male thing. But the militia provides a place that you can bring all these different things together. Uh, It's men together without the impact of women. Uh, They're also, I don't know whether democratic is the right term, but they're electing their own officers. Um, So unlike other organizations, they're a place that ordinary men uh, can have a voice. And in this way, the militia becomes quite a, a symbol of independent men. And go, owning a gun sort of then t- starts to tie into that. And I think this period is really important in terms of our physically arming the community. Men have every reason to want to own a gun to protect their family. Before the 1750s, your guns are expensive. Um, they have some limits in hunting. I mean, trapping small game is probably better than trying to shoot big game. Um, you know, unless you're a, a hunter on the frontier, um, you know, trapping or fishing, if you're looking to support your family, is probably going to be a better way of doing it. Um, but when you have the 40 years war going on, and you never know when there's going to be a native raid. You're constantly afraid for the protection of your family. You have every reason to own a gun. You get together in groups with other men. You practice shooting. You fire your guns. You go off hunting. The role, the, the imagery of hunting that develops, I think, it, it is very significant. And then you get this whole image of the hunter and the militiaman as the icon of the West. Uh, and it gets tied in with ideas of, pa- of patriotism, of independence, of loyalty to the United States, which it really has no tie to at all. But this imagery uh, sort of develops. And I think one of the places I, I, I was most shocked to see this, um, in Lexington, Um, The main cemetery in Lexington, in the middle of the cemetery, there's a a memorial to Daniel Boone. It's it's where Boone is purportedly buried. Uh, So Boone died in Missouri, but like 20 years later... um, when this, this cemetery in Lexington opened, they decided they needed something to attract people into the cemetery. Uh, so they contacted Boone's family and they dug up what they thought was Boone's grave and transported Boone back to, to Lexington, back to Frankfurt, Kentucky, uh, where he's buried, uh, where they buried the body. And they put up this big memorial on every side of the memorial. There's one picture of, of Boone's wife, uh, Rebecca, milking a cow, but the other three sides are all images of Boone in a, a, a coonskin cap, carrying his rifle you know, in various different poses, defending, uh, fighting against a Native American, talking to other settlers, and this, this sort of image is so powerful, but that's not Boone. I mean, this, this is an image in some ways that's developed even later coming out of Davy Crockett, the coonskin cap it's a completely invented image I think it has its origins with with Benjamin Franklin in when he was in France trying to prove that he was a real sort of Western man and then it re-emerges in the 1820s and 30s as a sort or well, 1830s and 40s as a symbol of ordinary men in the West but this is not Boone so this imagery of guns of the militia of, of Western violence picks up, sort of, particularly in the 1820s and 30s, as a way of men thinking about their heritage, uh, of their background. And it's then really developed by uh, another famous man, Davy Crockett, um, who has political issues for trying to develop this. You know, he's running against Andrew Jackson in Tennessee. He's, Jackson's his local opponent. And Crockett sort of develops, the, crafts this image of himself as a plain-speaking frontiersman. Uh, and it gets legs, and, and it, the, these stories develop. And ironically, after after Crockett uh, dies at the Alamo, uh, th- there's this mass publication of what are called Crockett almanacs. And this is actually where the image of the coonskin cap really develops. It's in it's in the Crockett. It's not even Davy Crockett himself. It's the Crockett almanacs after his death. And it's quite clear that this imagery, the Crockett almanacs are these of these. So 20, 30 page documents, 20 or 30 page publications uh, that contain all sorts of details useful to uh, sort of farmers. Um, So there'll be information about, you know, um, the moon, the phases of the moon, sunrises, all these sorts of different things. But interspersed within these are these sort of wild, mad stories about Crockett's escapades. Lots and lots of pictures. I mean, the loads and loads of cartoons all the way through these—they're horribly racist, um, terribly misogynistic, um, but they. The pictures of Western men within there, that they're often armed with rifles, they've got their coonskin caps on. This is the image of the frontiersman. And when you go and look at Boone's memorial to Boone in Frankfurt Cemetery, that is the picture you're seeing. It's not a contemporary image of Boone from his life. It's something that's completely different. And it ties into the militia, the idea of men armed with guns, battling other people, defending the community, defending their families. Um, I think this becomes... um, really important about how people imagine the west and actually in the revolutionary war um the west is not a, a sort of center of great uh, loyalty um you know people like boone carries a a, a militia uh, his appointment as a militia officer from governor hamilton with with him throughout uh, a lot of his life um uh, he, you know, he, he he leaves the United States to live in in Spanish Missouri. Uh, George Rogers Clark also considers um, sort of working with the Spanish. The West is actually a place of in the revolution, a fair amount of disaffection. A lot of Boone's, um, his wife's family are, are all loyalists. So this, this image of the West as a bastion of, of revolutionary patriotism and, and, and loyalty to the United States, epitomized by the frontiersman, the militiamen, is a sort of creation. But the militia is a comfortable place for a lot of poorer white men. It's a place that they can display their skills. They can be away from women. They can be in front of the community and it's one way that they can be important they can feel important even if they don't have land even if they don't have any money even if they're not independent you can still have a really important role in the militia and I think that's why it emerges as such a central feature of western society in the 1790s and then on into the early 19th century
1: Mm. I think it really brings together a lot of the things that you've been telling us and that is such a great explanation for then why it endures um and also interesting to kind of hear about you know these things that these images very much associated with the west and kind of where they actually come from uh, despite where we may think they do Can I ask, I suppose, a kind of big picture behind the scenes sort of question? Uh, As you detailed for us at the beginning, this project developed out of a lot of investigation and questions and starting off in one place and then going somewhere else and then finding this piece. Is there something you came across in the researcher writing of this that particularly surprised you?
0: I think that the biggest thing that's, struck that, well, there are a number of different things, one of which I'd pick up on at the start would be the, the lack of women in Western courts. That, that was something that I was absolutely not expecting to see. Uh, and I don't think it's something that other people have commented on. Uh, I, I suspect because no one else has tried to do such a sort of hare-brained project, uh, looking you comparing so many different places together. Um, but the lack of women in the Western courts was, was something that, I was just not expecting to see it all. Um, and it, it is really striking. What What's going on there, I really don't know. I'd say further than that, um, the, the inequality in the West, I, I was not expecting, You know, I don't want to feel like a, a Tanarian uh, with the image of the West as being a, a very equitable society. Um, but particularly the bluegrass regions of Kentucky, places like Mason County in Kentucky, the the, the top 10% of the wealthiest 10% of the population own something like 93% of the community's wealth. These were incredibly unequal societies, uh, much more unequal than anything you would see in the East. And I wasn't expecting to see that at all. And what I found quite interesting, something I didn't really talk about, in the book, we we looked a bit at, at Canada, and it, the original idea was to include uh, a, a Canadian component within this as another comparison. But it, it just made the book too complex, too complicated and complex. But it was sort of amazing that the the the, the image that the myth of the American frontier, the idea of of sort of these egalitarian Western communities, you actually sort of see it in Canada. Uh, the Canadian communities actually looked much more like I thought. American communities are purported to be. Um, and what was also interesting in, in, in uh, Upper Canada, places that we were looking at, the same people, I mean, the, the, particularly the, the movement of people from Ohio and Western Pennsylvania into Canada back again, the same elite men were involved, a lot of the same merchants, the same, the, the, the frontier is incredibly porous. Um, and I think one of the things that frustrates me sometimes with uh, American history generally is that the frontier is sort of this curtain Uh, that cuts off everything to the North and to the South and actually particularly in the 18th and early 19th century um, the frontier is of uh, the 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 border with canada and the border with mexico is incredibly porous people are just moving around and moving about so i say if, if there were any things that really surprised me it would be that the lack of women would be the the big thing what you why do women disappear so much from western courts and you know i say i talked a lot about the masculinity but i think then there are other things going on as well that don't really sort of make sense that you, a lot of women in the In the East, uh, being prosecuted for things like sexual misdemeanors, so fornication, bastardy, uh, slander, uh, these sorts of things appearing in Eastern courts and continuing right through the 18th and into the 19th century. You don't get that in the West, but it's not because they're not prosecuting sort of moral misdemeanors elite men are all being prosecuted for things like drunkenness, for swearing, for breaking the Sabbath. So why do these things change? And I, 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 I it's one of the things, if I had more time, I'd like to try and do a much bigger exploration of that. I'm, I'm not sure how easy it would be to come up with all the exploration and explanations why Western courts completely disengaged from women and why women are just not considered important in the West. Um, it's t- I mean, it has to be tied into all of these issues of, of masculinity and the roles that the courts play in the community. But that was the big shock for me, the lack, the absolute lack, in, in some cases, a total absence of women from the county courts when they had been so visible in those courts earlier on. Mm.
1: That's a really interesting um, thing to notice and, and hopefully somehow someone will investigate that further probably more than one person it'll take to untangle all of that Um, but that does actually lead me quite nicely into my final question Uh, now that this book is out after so much work went into it is there anything you might be working on next whether or not it's a book whether or not it's on this exact topic that you'd like to preview or highlight
0: yeah, I, I mean, I've been working on this this project for so long. Uh, there's there's a number of other things that along the way have sort of started to to, to boil up. And to, if I if I'm honest, I'm sort of now at the stage of my career, I'm starting to think about sort of reducing my hours, having more time to, to write. I mean, that's that's when I think when you get towards the end of your career, you seem to end up with more and more time spent doing administration and things rather than doing the things that you like, like teaching and writing. But a number of things. I mean, one one of the things that that I really want to do is write a sort of bigger um not quite a popular history but but the 40 years war i mean i I think uh i'm always disappointed with with the books that seem to exist on the revolutionary war in the west and the way they portray the war and i think there's quite a tension between sort of academic histories and popular histories Uh, so one of the things i want to think about is, is is a a Book project there. I'm also interested in thinking about a fundamental question: Why did the Ohio, what well, the Northwest Territory, the Great Lakes in particular, why did they become part of the United States? Um, I did a little bit of work a few years ago of, on the uh, Treaty of Paris in 1783, and the, again Americans just presume that there are good reasons. Uh, what you know, it's obvious that that uh, the, that the American border would be where it is. It, it's not really, and I think it's quite. You know, I don't want to go down the lines of all. Alternative histories, um, but the the, the U.S. Canadian border is in some ways almost an accident. It could have been a lot further south. That would have had different reasons. And finally, I think the the main um, the main project that I'm really working on. Uh, that I, I started working on at, at the same time that i started this project um but i obviously i had to divert my my work into this project it's looking at sort of native demography uh in the upper ohio valley uh in the second half of the 18th century what what i'm really interested in is is why what was happening to the native population and i think if you think about it in one way um you know the native people in 1750, control the region. Obviously, by the early 19th century, they've disappeared. Well, the people haven't disappeared, they've been pushed out, but the population has dropped dramatically. And I think people think about this in various ways. I started off with this from the Jeffrey Amherst sort of the infamous quote about the smallpox blankets. You know, could not we not spread smallpox uh, amongst the the native people to extirp- extirpate them? Uh, I think that's slightly a, a red herring, but I think what it shows is the importance of disease. So what I'm interested in thinking about is why were native people why would, would epidemics having such a devastating impact on native people um, when we think of this much earlier on we talk about it in terms of virgin soil epidemics you know native people hadn't been exposed to these ep- diseases before that's not the case by the late 18th century so so what's actually what are the dynamics here uh, what roles do things like changing diet play um, we know for instance native people had become um, in the ohio valley had become known for the production of cheese um, by either 1770s, 1780s. Um, there's a lot of lactose intolerance in Native American populations, Might things like that. So it's in exploring and picking out little things like that to try and explain what's going on amongst the Native population, particularly in the context of the 40 years war. I, I mean, I I've got really on a sort of hobby horse about <laughs> trying not to think about you know, all these different campaigns as being Separate things, but being one struggle, and thinking about how that affected the Northwest. And all of these books actually relate to that topic.
1: Mm-hmm. No, they, they do. And they're fascinating questions. So thank you for sharing kind of your current thinking on them. And of course, anyone looking to get into these questions, and especially the idea of the 40 Years' War, um, you can read the book we've been discussing, titled Making the Frontier Man, Violence, White Manhood and Authority in the Early Western Backcountry, published by University of Pittsburgh Press. Matthew, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast.
0: Thank you very much for having me. I've, it's been a, a really fun chat. So I th- thank you for your, your very good questions.